Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Scrub Casting Sippy Cups. And today we have a really cool guest. So when I was first diagnosed with my breast cancer about 13 months ago, my friend said, oh, my sister-in-law also had a similar you know, journey and I can connect you guys if you want. And when you're first diagnosed with this and you don't know anyone, that's like a huge thing to talk to someone. So Chrissy connected me with Beth Wilms, who's here with us today who also had her own breast cancer journey and then created her own nonprofit to then create resources for our community and women going through a similar journey. So welcome, Beth. Thanks for talking to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Crystal. Yeah. So Beth, your nonprofit is called what? Faith Through Fire is what it's called, um, which I think is an appropriate name. <laughs> when, exactly. When you go through the breast cancer journey. So faiththroughfire.org. I love that. Awesome. Do you just want to tell us a little bit about your journey and kind of like how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. So I was 35 years old. I had a six, a four, and a one-year-old. And I've been in sales my entire life. So spent a large portion of my sales career in healthcare sales. So I understand your lady's world and I really enjoyed it. So I enjoyed the sales process and I enjoyed my work immensely. And so that's where I found myself at 35 was just balancing work and my family life with my husband and my three kids and felt really good. And until one day, my husband, we were kind of spooning in bed and he had his arm kind of flung across my chest. And he's the one that actually found the lump and said, what is that? And so he kind of took my hand and guided it to where he felt. And that's when I felt the lump. And I just instantly knew it was not good. (laughs) I I don't know about you, you, Crystal, but I knew immediately that this is not good. I knew immediately. Like I was in denial and hopeful that it wasn't. But yeah, I knew right away as well. Yeah, I think it was just hard and immovable. And it Mm -hmm. just felt really not, not great. So Immediately, you know, I called my OB the next day and told him about it. Their first question was kind of like, well, are you on your period? And I said, yes. And so they said, oh, it's a swollen lymph node. You know, I'm sure it's nothing. People your age, you know, I was 35. People your age very rarely get breast cancer. So just keep an eye on it. You know, and in a few weeks, if it doesn't go away, let us know. And so I hung up and I told my husband what they said. And he said, oh, see, I told you, no big deal. And I just knew. So I I sat there for a minute and I didn't feel good about it. And I called him back. I said, can I please have my first ever mammogram? And they said, sure. And so that's, that's what I did. I went to get the mammogram and that's, I had the radiologist do the biopsy while I was there because I could tell it wasn't, wasn't going to be good. And, and so I knew by the next day that I had breast cancer. Oh, wow. That was pretty fast. Yeah. I had from finding the lump to be, be being able to get off work to go see my OB probably took three or four weeks and no alarm bells rang. And I don't, I don't think they do. Like looking back, no one's going to be like, that's probably breast cancer and freak people out, you know? Well, I think most they're of the like, time it's not breast cancer. And that's kind of yeah. why doctors are like, you're probably fine. Yeah. They're like, oh, it's probably a, a cyst or whatnot, whatever. But let's go ahead and get an ultrasound. And, you know, it took maybe another six weeks to be able to do that. And then once it came to any needing a biopsy, I'm like, I just need this day off and it's, you guys are going to have to make it happen. And then I probably found out three days after the biopsy. Yeah. I answered the phone when they called me at work. I answered the phone and I was expecting them to tell me it was a cyst for some reason. I was just like, this is going to be good news today. It was Friday. Oh, they're going to call me for the weekend so I can have a good weekend. I'll, you know, all this stuff's going through your mind. Right. No, not a good weekend. We just, we just hit a year, almost a year ago. Can you believe that? 
Yeah, that's that. It, it's kind of weird how fast and slow the journey goes mm-hmm. all at the same time. I don't know about you, but when they gave me that news over the phone, it was like that scene in the movies where everything kind of goes quiet, but at the same time, it's like bombs going off near your head. I mean, you're <laughs> yeah, just like, exactly. it's in this like you're in this daze. Like, what is happening right now? Is this real? You know, your body it's, goes. It's in almost shock. like yeah, it's and it's almost like when someone dies, kind of getting a diagnosis like that or the news like that, like you are so grief stricken yet the world's still going on around you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I, I had to I had to leave work. I was a hot mess. And just driving. Like people were still just driving and getting on off the highway. And I was like having a full blown meltdown. Yeah. Yeah. I I had about 40 minutes to process that news before I had to go pick my kids up from school. And so my husband and I were trying to just kind of process what had just happened to us. And then I just remember going to get the kids and then piling in the car and me trying to act normal as I gripped the steering mm-hmm. wheel and tried not to cry in front of them. And it was just, it's intense, especially mm-hmm. when you're on the younger side with us. I don't want to, you know, it's, it's traumatic for anybody, but you certainly don't expect it. You know, I didn't expect it at 35. Yeah. I was 39 when I was, when I was diagnosed and I left and my husband was on a plane. So I couldn't tell him right away. My daughter was at school, so I just went home and just, like, talked to the lady that called me, and she kind of walked me through the next step. And then I thought about her, like, what a terrible job to have to call people every day, all day, and give them this news. I know. Was she comforting to you, or did you find it just, like, was it clinical? She was clinical, but comforting. I liked her. But yeah. still, I would hate to have to give people horrible news all And that long. was a radiologist? Who called me was a um, clinical nurse coordinator. And oddly enough, a friend of mine was diagnosed with breast cancer and had her mastectomy two weeks prior to my actual diagnosis. And she was telling me, yeah, the clinical nurse coordinator called me and she had actually used to work with her mom years ago who also had breast cancer. So they connected. So when I answered the phone and she was like, hi, this is the clinical nurse coordinator. I was like, shit. You know, I knew right away because normally it's like, like the nurse okay. from, yeah, it's the nurse from the, you know, department where they do the biopsy that calls and tells you or your doctor, you know, that it's all good. So I knew it was bad, but I waited a few weeks to tell my kids. How about you, Beth? Uh, well, I was fortunate in the fact, actually, my friends and family still can't believe we handled it this way. But so I had a six, a four and a one-year-old and we didn't tell them. And that, and that kind of like people are shocked by that. We did not tell them. We, we, well, I shouldn't say we didn't tell them. We never said explicitly that I had breast cancer. We broke down each part of the process. So it started with, hey, mommy's got to go in for a surgery. She's going to be in the hospital a couple of days, like when she had baby Charlotte. And then she's going to come home and recover there. And that's exactly what happened. And I was up walking around, you know, the next day. They never saw my drains because I kept them under my shirt. And I just, we really tried to keep things as normal as possible. And we just answered, like we told ourselves we weren't going to lie to them. So if they asked us or if they had concerns or they showed any signs of distress, we were going to be very forthright and honest with them. But we also were just like, listen, our oldest is six and, you know, we're just going to kind of play it by ear and, and give them, you know, as much information as they really ask us about. And then they never really did. And so after surgery, we said, okay, you know, now mommy's going to take medication and it's going to make her hair fall out and she's going to look really funny, but it's going to come back at Christmas time. And that's all we said. And that's what happened. And so they were Mm -hmm. just like, okay. I mean, I was really shocked. I kept thinking this is going to, you know, fall apart at some point and it never did. And the, and the four and the one-year-old had no clue. They didn't think anything of it. So yeah. And then with radiation, my kids were in school, like in school or daycare. So I would go to radiation before work. And so they never saw me go to radiation. I didn't show them radiation burns. They didn't see anything. So they, they just saw me acting normal. I will say when I was doing chemo and stuff, there were days where I was in bed, you know, and we did, we just said, mommy's medicine's making her feel bad. She's going to sleep, you know, as much as she can. And, you know, my husband really stepped into the, uh, stepped up and just did all the, domesticated you know, mm-hmm. did everything. And so, um, we just kind of managed it like that. And it was actually not until my kids were like, I guess I told them two years ago that I had breast cancer and they were blown away. They had no clue. Wow. So, so that my was my daughter- next question is like, did you ever like end up telling them? Cause I feel like 
Yeah. Like at some point there's like breast cancer awareness, you know, month right, or right. something. And oh, then like your kid's like, do we know anybody who's had breast cancer? And it's like, right. well, actually, <laughs> well, we, it was funny because we, I started the nonprofit. And so I was going to be, you know, immersing myself in, you know, in breast cancer. And so we we're like, well, this is a good opportunity to explain mommy's new business and what she's doing. And so that's when we told them, we said, you, you know, do you understand what mommy's doing now? And they said, yeah, you're helping, you know, you're helping cancer patients. And I said, yeah. And I said, do you know why that's important to me? And they were like, no. And I said, well, you know, mommy had breast cancer and they, they were just like, what? (laughs) They had no clue. So for them, and we just really normalized it and they didn't really think anything of it. They don't bat an eyelash about it now, you know, and we always kind of approached it with the idea of, you know, because people were really shocked by that. And they thought that was really, honestly, they thought it was strange. I think if you talk to any psychologist, they tell you that you should be very direct and honest about your diagnosis. Um, I think I'm the only one that did it the other way where I just kind of somewhat kept it under the, I don't know, under the covers, whatever I'm trying to say. Under wrap. Uh, yeah, under but, wrap. But you were still like honest with them about the steps of the process. It's not like you hid it or like you pretended like you were like something wasn't going on. It was right. just, you never named it. Right. And we said to each other, my husband and I talked about this and we're like, listen, if my condition takes a turn for the worst or the cancer returns, that's a different conversation. Then we're going to have to get a little bit more direct and real. And that's when the conversation gets harder. But until we get to that point, we just kind of decided not to go there. So we were just very much like, we're going to take this one step at a time. And that's what worked for us. So we were really happy. We handled it that way. The, the kids are, you know, completely, I kind of joke about it. Like guys, really, like you couldn't figure this out. <laughs> like I'm, I'm kind of questioning my kids' intelligence because I think they didn't put two and two together. And Crystal, Tegan handle it. I think it's that age because yours were six and under. Mine was seven and she just turned eight. Actually, she turned seven. My diagnosis was on July 17th. She turned seven on July 19th. So it has to be something with that age. But I waited till I could talk about it without crying before I told her. And I just like didn't have anything planned. I just kind of went with it. It like almost came up in conversation. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, so mommy found a lump. And I let her feel it. So figuring down the road at one point, I mean, it was big. Like I was having my girlfriends at work feel like, you guys, this is what it feels like, you know? Yeah. I had her feel it. I was like, that's not supposed to be there. So I'm going to have surgery to get it taken out. And the doctor's going to give me medicine and the medicine's going to make me lose my hair, but don't worry. It'll grow back. But she was horrified losing the hair, losing the hair. She lost it. I mean, sobbing, hmm. shocked, just like, like there was no consoling her. And then I, then I only kind of told her what we needed to tell her, but she was just so I mean, they listened to everything. Like after my first mastectomy, my first, my mastectomy, they tried to do nipple sparing just to like move mountains and they couldn't. So about two weeks later, I had to go back for a revision. And and it's not like I ever said to my daughter, oh, the nipple sparing didn't work. We're going to go get them removed. But one day, like weeks later, she asked me about it. So you don't have, you don't have those anymore. And I was like, what? She's like, you know, the things I have. And I was like, what? She's like, you know how you fed me when I was a baby? Mm. she knew yeah and I was like oh yeah and then I just felt like I had to be like she wanted she had all these questions yeah so I showed her I showed her like what it looked like and like she was just like into it and was asking all these questions and I said you know I'm gonna get a, a tattoo down the road you know like people get tattoos I'm gonna get a nipple tattoo and she's like oh maybe I should go with you and and show them my nipple so they know what yours used to look like that is so cute and she's just really very like she wants to be involved she wants to help I mean who knows maybe Rick was talking to someone on the phone in the car I mean I, I don't know how she picked up on that but she did and then she knew where my drains were and I never showed her my drains we would always you know do all that stuff in the bathroom so I don't know if she would just like watch and just like notice the bulge or what but I think it's just that one year age difference that just changes the whole game it also was my like my oldest my six-year-old was my son and I, I think it makes a difference yeah. too. Yeah. If my daughter had been my oldest, I don't know that I could have gotten away with that. But my son's very much like, just take you at face value. Whatever you tell yeah. him, he's just like, okay. He's a man. <laughs> yeah, he's a man. They don't see things unless it's right in front of their face. Uh, yeah, I mean, he was just really like, kind of just 
very much took it at face value. My daughter, I question if it would have gone that same way. I think she would have been more like your daughter, Crystal. We had like the same treatment. We both did chemo. Uh, we both did just mastectomies. We both did uh, radiation. Yeah. Um, and then when I first connected with you about a year ago, you had just started a podcast. Can you tell us about your podcast? Yeah. Yeah. So part, that's one of the programs that's part of our faith through fire is that we, me and another young survivor named Sarah, we started a podcast and we called it besties with breasties because we were friends. We were both young survivors. Uh, Sarah was pregnant when she got the news that she had breast cancer. You know, we both felt like we did a good job with coping with the whole thing and trying to have breast cancer make us stronger instead of, you know, weaker at the end of it. But that takes a lot of intentionality. And we also didn't want to sugarcoat it. It's a hard road. It's not easy. It's not something you expect to do. But we wanted to kind of develop a podcast where we were real about what it's like uh, to go through it, but also to offer the hope that once that you can be happy again, you can feel healthier than ever. It is possible. It does take a lot of intentionality and work, which can feel very unfair after having gone through this whole traumatic process. Um, But yeah, that was kind of why we decided to do it. Sarah was the one that actually said, let's do a podcast. And I thought, oh my gosh, I wouldn't know the first thing about it. But now we just, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel about it, but we have a blast with it. We have a lot Mm -hmm. of fun with it. We try to use humor. You know, we talk about cancer in retrospect because we're both done with active treatment right now. We're both on hormone blockers, but we're done with like the primary treatment. And we just talk about it in retrospect through the lens of survivorship. And I think it's an interesting perspective and patients really tell us it's helpful. We walk them through the entire journey. So one woman, uh, we ran into her at a race, at a breast cancer race, and she started crying because she said, I started listening the day I got diagnosed. And it was literally like every episode you guys put out was right coinciding with where I was in the journey. And so she found it very reassuring. So we love it. It's a lot of fun. And we get great feedback on it, but it's called Besties with Breasties. And you can find it on our website at faiththroughfire.org or it's on all the platforms. So Beth, that's awesome. Well, I had I had a client the other day, Beth, that, and I feel like more often than not, I always end up telling my clients and I, I don't like telling people because I feel like it brings the mood down. It's like a bummer. And people are like, oh, oh, it totally so does. <laughs> like, but then at the same time, I'm pretty open about it. And it's like, my story can help someone. And like, I'm obviously wearing a wig and you can tell people like are looking at it. So I just feel like the, the more open I am, the better. I and mean, as long as you're just like upbeat about it and, you know, they know you're not dying, then they're right. usually okay. I open to talk about it. But this one client I had said she met a girl and that was in her birthing clinic. I guess she had like had baby in a birthing center, not necessarily a hospital. And her her friend had went through breast cancer and chemo while she was pregnant. And she goes, and she just started a podcast. And I go, Oh, I know her. And she goes, her name's Sarah. I go, Oh, I don't know her. But isn't that funny that she that's, knows. Yeah, that's her. She so who was that? Who was the one that was at the birthing center? Do you remember her first name? Uh, Bonnie. Okay. I guarantee you yeah. Sarah knows who she is. Oh yeah. Small and world. I, yeah. I think they might've had like maybe two babies at the same time or, or and they, but they saw each other a lot and they, connected at the birthing center and it's just too funny um, yeah. i was like yeah she's gonna be on our podcast and then they're like wait you have a podcast and people just think well crazy but you probably get the same thing <laughs> yeah yeah for sure yeah sarah actually coaches our she's a consultant to women who are uh, pregnant when they get breast cancer the breast cancer diagnosis since she went through that and she has experience with holistic birthing and all that so she she helps women who get that news when um when they're pregnant so that's I really one. wish I would have known about this like a few months ago. So one of my, a girl I went to nursing school with got diagnosed sometime around like 20-ish weeks mm-hmm. uh, with breast cancer. And she just had a baby. She's on, you know, kind of maternity leave now and going through treatment still. And and she did like chemo while pregnant and and all of that. And I wish, like, I'm going to send her these resources, but I wish I, I had them to send to her at the beginning. So mm-hmm. that's just, it's an awesome thing because it's such a, I feel like a unique situation or it's like sub-specialized in this, you know, area. And so it's yeah. just a really like phenomenal 
thing that you guys are willing to share that aspect of it. So thank you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, at first I was, I'm a very private person. So I thought, well, how's this going to work? Because you know, with the podcast and the, and faith through fire, I'm thinking I'm going to have to really put myself out there. And that feels awkward to me because I feel like Mm -hmm. at first when I had breast cancer, this is private. I didn't put it on social. I was just like, I'm going to keep the, the, the people that know about this, a very tight circle. I mean, I was just a very private person, but you can't have a nonprofit and start a podcast and want to help people by keeping your story quiet. You kind of have to, mm-hmm. you know, step outside of your comfort zone and say the things that maybe you don't feel comfortable saying. But I will say that now that I've done that, it's just so healing to be able to share with other people your experience to validate their experience and to just kind of, you know, normalize the emotions that you feel and the things that you're going through. And you know, I really do think that adversity makes you stronger. And so if you go into it with that mindset, I think, you know, that you can really come out stronger, but yeah, that was hard for me. I wasn't, I was a private person. Nobody believes that because they think I'm so outgoing, but I, I really wanted to keep it quiet at first. Yeah. So you have a podcast, you have a nonprofit, and you also have a a mentorship program called Fortify Peer. So can you tell us a little bit about that, about how you find your mentors and what you've learned from all of this along with, you know, working with the patients and the nurses, the doctors, everybody that you work with to make all this happen? Yeah, sure. So sure Crystal can agree with this, but the thing that shocked me the most about being diagnosed with breast cancer is that it is so much more an emotional battle than it is even a physical battle. People do not realize that. And I didn't realize that until I got diagnosed. You, You think the physical stuff is hard, but the mental component of cancer is so much harder. I mean, you're at war with your brain all the time. And the fear is just really crazy. And, you know, younger patients too can feel very isolated because they feel like this doesn't happen to people my age. You know, the average breast cancer patient is 63. If you're 35 or the woman that mentored me through it was 28, you know, that can feel really shocking. So one of the things, there's lots of organizations that will have kind of mentorship programs where they'll pair a survivor with a newly diagnosed patient. But I was on the younger side. I was, you know, I had a career, I had young kids and I didn't have kind of the emotional bandwidth to to invest in a new friendship, right? I didn't want all the pressure of having to meet somebody new and, you know, be really friendly. And I just didn't have it in me. You know, I, I was kind of falling apart. And so when I decided to do this mentor program, I wanted to match people up, but I wanted it to be low maintenance and unobtrusive. And so we made it primarily through text messaging. So the whole idea is, is that, you know, somebody gets diagnosed, they can submit a form asking for a survivor mentor, and I will reach out to them via text and say, Hey, I got your form. What's going on? Tell me about your story. And then I match them up with somebody and the relationship is through text unless both parties decide they'd rather talk on the phone. And that way they can kind of just, you have that lifeline there when you're really spiraling or you're having a tough day or you just need to hear from somebody who's been there, done that. Um, But you also can put it away and have boundaries and have that safe space for your brain to just kind of decompress. And so, yeah, our Fortify Mentor Program is meant to be that way. And it's really worked well. We get a lot of compliments from the patients just saying that it feels so low pressure so they have that support when they want it and they don't have it when they don't want it. And um, and that was the intent. So that's our mentorship program. We also uh, partnered with Build-A-Bear um, to provide teddy bears to children impacted by breast cancer, basically as a tangible source of emotional support. And I think when you kind of cater to the kids' emotional needs, that also takes less, you know, m- more stress off of mom. And so a lot of the moms will use the bears to explain the diagnosis to their kids, or they'll give it to them at a critical point, like when they lose their hair or when something kind of hard is going on at home. And it's, it's really sweet. It's very simple, but it's very sweet. And then of course we have the podcast. So that's amazing. And you partner with doctors and social workers and nurses and how, what, what role is theirs in this whole thing? Yeah. So, well, obviously, I mean, they are seeing our patient demographic every day, day in and day out. So we have some really amazing partnerships with nurse navigators in particular. I mean, the nurses are really the ones that really go to bat for the patients. And so nurses are referring their patients to Faith Through Fire, and that's how we get the majority of our patients. But we've got patients across the country. It's not just in St. Louis. We're based in St. Louis, but we've got Uh, We've even got a mentor in Ireland um, right now. So, and it was really interesting. We got her, she wanted to become a mentor. I talked to her, she was amazing. And then the next day we had a mentee, like a patient from Ireland requesting a mentor. So 
Yeah, it's kind of crazy. So we we do depend on doctors and nurses. I think a lot of nurses, and you guys could probably speak to this to some degree, they struggle with what to do for patients, right? Yeah. Patients get told this devastating news. And a lot of times they don't have all the information yet to give them a definitive diagnosis or a, a prognosis. And so here you've got this person melting down in your office, they're devastated and you don't know what to do for them. And so right. a lot of the feedback we're getting from our referring partners is that it's just such a great thing to be able to hand them the brochure to Faith Through Fire or direct them to the website. Sometimes they fill out the forms together in the doctor's office. And so, yeah, we work really closely with the oncology community and uh, they refer patients our way. I would imagine. I've got, I have a couple questions here. Yeah. Okay. First of all, how does, if someone's listening, who's been through breast cancer, how do they sign up to be a mentor? Yeah. Um, when you go to faiththroughfire.org, you're going to see a page called survivorship. And when you go there, there is a form to fill out if you want to be a mentor. That's amazing. And if somebody needs a mentor, somebody's mm-hmm. listening who has recently been diagnosed with breast cancer or is going through this journey now, how do they reach out to request a mentor and that relationship? Yeah. Same thing. They go on the website, faiththroughfire.org, and they'll go under newly diagnosed and it'll say, ask for a mentor. And so there'll be a form for them. And then if, sorry, I, I was like, like listening to this and I was like, right, like scribble in notes. Okay. Yeah. So my next question is, so I, I mean, we all work in surgery and I do work with surgeons who do a mastectomy and reconstructive surgery yeah. and so for breast cancer. And so how would I get them in touch with your resources so that they could, you know, hand out flyers or that they would just like at least be available in the clinic so that if somebody needed that extra layer of support that they could like, we could get like more doctors and nurses giving your information out. How would we do go about that? So, I mean, the easiest way for them to reach me is they can either, um, you know, I can provide you with my email address or they can just submit the get involved form. You know, we have a get involved section of the website. So if they just say, Hey, I'm a referring provider, you know, I'm a breast surgeon. I'd love to, you know, have some of your brochures or know how to refer patients to your program. I'll touch base with them and let them know like the best way to go forward. We can give them brochures or a lot of the doctors like to have just like business cards with our URL on them because it fits in their lab coat pockets. And that way they can carry a bunch and then just hand them to patients. That's a really easy way because carrying a bunch of brochures is not really realistic when you're a surgeon. I will say that the breast surgeons in particular are kind of the front line. I mean, when you get diagnosed with breast cancer, that's usually the first person you see. Some people get chemo first now, but a lot of the times the breast surgeon's the first person you're going to see. And so they are the first doctor or nurse that has the opportunity to point patients to resources. Mm -hmm. So ideally they would really be on the front lines of making sure that patients know we exist and, and providing them. And, you know, I mean, doctors and nurses are so crazy busy nowadays, and that is not their fault. That is how the system is designed. And I can't imagine being in healthcare today because of the time crunch and all of the requirements involved with being in healthcare nowadays. So we try to make it as easy as possible on them to refer patients our way. So, but yeah, that's, that's probably the easiest way. How many mentor mentee relationships do you guys have through your network? How many have we connected? Yeah. We're at about a hundred relationships so far. We launched in October of 2019. COVID happened in March of 2020. So we were really cruising. We were gaining a lot of momentum, had a lot of referring providers. And then COVID happened and everything kind of just came to a screeching halt, which I have to say, I completely understand given what was going on in the medical community, but it was such a sad thing for me to watch because when COVID happened, that's when they stopped. They started all the restrictions with support in the clinical setting. So you had all these women being diagnosed with breast cancer and having to go through treatment during COVID and they didn't have the same kind of support that they had prior. And that would have been a perfect opportunity for us to be crazy busy. And that's when our referrals actually dropped. So it was really hard for me as a patient to watch that because I knew all these women were really struggling and, and, and it was just, it's the way it was, you know, but yeah. So, so now we're coming out of that a little bit and the referrals have picked back up. But I do question now if we're going to see another wave and and what's going to happen, you know, with these women that are in treatment now. You know, a part that I had a hard, really hard time with 
because I did chemo first. So I had six months of chemo um, and then some recovery time before I did my mastectomy. But while I was getting treated, I saw, saw these patients that say their treatment should have been mastectomy, bilateral mastectomies with expander placements for you know future reconstruction. Well, with the COVID restrictions, they could only do the mastectomies because that was the tier one that they submitted for. The expanders was not a necessity. So they had to come back for another surgery just to do that part. I mean, the way they like dissected down how these surgeries could be done was really hard to watch, you know? Yeah. We had a patient, this is a really crazy story. So we had a patient who got diagnosed with breast cancer. She wanted to get a double mastectomy. Her mom at the very same time got diagnosed with late stage lung cancer. So she was coping with not only her stress with her illness, but now her mom. Then they told her that because there's only one cancerous breast, we're only going to take off one right now. And then you have to come back in and do the second one a different time. Mm -hmm. So what happened was she went in, had one breast taken off the cancerous breast, then her mom passed. Then she had to go through that. And then she had to come back in for the other side. And so those are the things that people don't think about, but that's, that was going on all the time. And that's, that's the thing is that they're going through this by themselves. And it's just really, I mean, breast cancer is traumatizing anyway. And I didn't have to go through treatment during COVID, but I can't imagine, like you said, having to dissect out the process and basically prolong, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's months in between of recovery and then having to go back in and do it again. Yeah. It's It's just crazy. crazy. Mm -hmm. They are starting to tear surgeries again, but I don't think... I don't think it'll ever get as bad as it was a knock on wood. Mm -hmm. We pray to God, but it's just crazy. But I know for me personally, like Chrissy connected me with you and that was pretty early on. I think that was like, I don't even think I'd started chemo or anything yet. Yeah. And then I, I was connected with a few other people just through friends. Hey, my friend went through this. She's your age. She has kids, you know, yada, yada. I actually ended up being the person who performed the anesthesia for two of my new friends when they had their mastectomies. Whoa, that's wild. Yeah, it's like full full circle. And then actually I met another one through CRNA Moms who doesn't live in St. Louis, but her friend does. And she's going to have a mastectomy and she requested me to do her anesthesia. So it's like I've unknowingly mentored, you know, these women, but there's only so many of me. So the, the fact that you have this program is really needed and really necessary and really amazing. And I'm yeah. definitely going to, going to refer people out to you. It's when totally I, life-changing. You're, you're literally changing lives. It really helps when you know, somebody's been through it and they're there for you. When I was getting ready for my double mastectomy, I held it together. I was pretty like, you know, I, I knew that was what I was going to do and I was okay until, you know, when they're prepping you for surgery, then and the nerves start happening. You're like, am I doing this? This is happening. I'm doing this. And the nurse must've just seen my face and noticed that I was really starting to look kind of nervous. And she said, are you okay, honey? And I said, well, I'm really, I'm starting to get nervous now. And she goes, oh, don't worry about it. She goes, you know what? She goes, I had a double mastectomy and she goes, you're going to be just fine. And she tells me her story and she looked healthy and happy and she was close to my age. And I just, I just went into that surgery going, okay, you got this, you know? So when somebody's willing to step in and just root you on and cheerlead for you, I do have a question for you, Crystal, with doing the anesthesia for other women's mastectomies, is that triggering for you or does it, is it okay? It doesn't bother me at all. Really? Yeah. I mean, I had seen the mastectomy so many times that, and of course I watched a little closer when I, when it was, you know, I was going to have to have it just out of curiosity. But yeah, it doesn't trigger me at all. I actually enjoy it. I really enjoy meeting the patients in pre-op. And, you know, I'm the anesthesia. So I meet you about five minutes before you go back. And that's when the nerves hit. And being able to be the one that says, I had a double mastectomy. This is, you know, and then answer all the questions because they always have last minute questions. Um, And to be able to not only calm their nerves verbally, but be able to give them drugs that then calm their nerves (laughs) (laughs) and take them back to surgery. It's, I I find it really rewarding. I really do. Yeah. That's a personal connection to it for sure. Yeah, I do. It's amazing. Yeah. I think that's the best thing that healing for you. Well, and that's what I was going to say is I think that like the thing that surprises our mentors the most is they could be 20 years out from their diagnosis and they're mentoring somebody. And they're, they'll they say to me, I am really surprised at how much I get out of this. Mm. Like it's still bringing healing to me 
this many years later, yeah, you know, I didn't realize that there was still, you know, still something there with this. And I didn't realize how fulfilling I would find this. And I think, you know, we, we say in our nonprofit that there's four pillars to successful survivorship. And one of those is finding purpose in what you went through. And I think that that's huge. And so for these mentors to be able to find purpose in what they went through by helping newly diagnosed patients, it's very healing for them. So it's not just for the newly diagnosed. It's also for those in survivorship and recovery that they, they get something out of it too. So it's just a, a double win, really. Beth, did you always plan to like help people with no. afterwards or what no. No. Oh my gosh. I was the patient that was like, once I'm done with this, I'm never looking back. I'm never going to have, I'm not going to do the walks. I'm not going to wear the pink. I'm not going to have anything to do with breast cancer ever again. It's not who I am. It's just something I went through. Yeah. No, I had no, I had no interest in doing that whatsoever, but I did benefit from a mentor when I went through treatment. I had a acquaintance call me up and say, Hey, I've got a friend. She went through what you're going through at 28 when she was in law school. Do you want, you know, I'm going to introduce you to, and she kind of mentored me through the process. And, and so then I think just naturally, like Crystal said, when you're a survivor, you, you kind of naturally want to help newly diagnosed patients feel a little less traumatized, a little bit better about it. And so you just kind of naturally start mentoring the newly diagnosed because people will start coming to you and say, my sister's friend or my cousin just got diagnosed. Do you mind talking to them? And so that's what I was doing. So after I went through everything and I had somebody kind of mentor me through it, I started informally mentoring newly diagnosed patients. And my oncologist at a routine follow-up visit she was late coming into the patient room and she she bustles in and she says, I'm so sorry I'm late. I actually had to tell a, a young woman your age that she had breast cancer and she was really upset. And I said, oh, what kind? And she told me and I said, oh, I'm mentoring somebody with that exact kind of breast cancer. And she said, well, what do you mean? So I explained what I was doing. I said, lots of survivors do it, you know? And she said, well, Beth, you ought to start a program and I will refer to it. She's like, you'd be perfect for that. And I just blew her off. I was like, haha, yeah, no, you know, I'm good. But when I went home and I kept thinking about it, I kept thinking, well, what was it that allowed you to not just survive this experience, but thrive despite it? Because we've all had bumps in the road. You don't get through this unscathed. You know, I had complications and additional surgeries and it's just the way it is. The minute you think you're escaping it, it drags you back in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just realized that the reason that I was able to kind of, you know, allow this to not just hold me back, but propel me forward was just all the support that I was fortunate enough to have. And I thought, well, what about the people, you know, who have family that's out of town or, you know, they don't have that level of support or they, they are younger and they don't know anybody else that's been through this. And I just, I kept thinking, you know, you should, you should do something about that. And so I just, that's what I did. I I went home and I told my husband, I said, okay, I'm going to leave my, you know, well-paying sales career and I'm going to start a nonprofit. And I think his head about exploded, but here we are. are. Yeah, here we are. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, talk about a calling or something put in your heart. You know what I mean? That's just exactly yeah. what that was. Yeah. 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 Well, I love that you followed it instead yeah. of just like, like, it like it, the stirring, like you followed it instead of just like blowing it off or putting it to the side. Yeah. Well, I, do no. give credit, I do give credit to God because I think it was his prompting that, that had me really have the guts to do it. But I also think that when you go through something as difficult as cancer and you have this, this moment where your world's like kind of just shook you also don't have a lot of time for BS after that. You know, when you, when you come out the other side, you're thinking I'm going to get busy living because nobody's guaranteed another day. And why am I putting up with this? And why am I putting, and I just, I loved my job, but at the same time, I was also so sick of the politicking and all of the corporate stuff. And I was just kind of burnt out on it. And I thought, well, if you're burnt out on it and you kind of feel like this new person after you've been through this, then, you know, maybe you don't belong there anymore. So part of it was just saying, you know what, life's too short and I'm ready for a change and I'm going to do it. That's amazing. I wish more people would get busy living before they have a situation like this. I know it. And that's kind of what I think all cancer patients want those that haven't had that kind of health scare yet to know, you know, just enjoy every moment because there were days when, you know, and Crystal can probably relate to this. It's like when you're sick with, you know, from chemo and you don't have the energy to lift your head, let alone fold a basket of laundry. I remember laying in bed fantasizing about being able to do my laundry. I know to be normal. Just yeah, yeah. Yeah. To be able to push a vacuum across the floor or, you know, to sit there and stand in line at a store or, you know, just anything. And so 
now when I do those things and I find myself feeling like crabby about it, I think there was a time when you were really excited to do these things and you should not take it for granted because not everybody gets to do it. So there's a there's some blessings that come out of it. Oh, you're so right. Thank you for that message. Yeah. I've definitely been saying this for a while that I feel like this has been a blessing in disguise for the outlook in my life that it's changed in so many ways. I just, I'm not the same person. I'll never be the same person. Like I'm forever changed. I'll never be the person, well, at least I hope not to be, that stands around and bitches about the dumbest things. Like, I mean, I, I and I try not to eye roll at people who do still, but it's like, that's if that's awesome. the worst problem in your day you're having, like you're going to be just fine. Right. Like people, more people need to stop and literally smell the roses. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. It's that is one of the benefits, but you're right. You come out and you are a different person. Mm-hmm. I remember when I, I went back to work after I got done with treatment and um, I was visiting with a customer and a man popped his head in the door. And so my customer introduced me to him. And then he said, well, Beth just came back from cancer treatment. And his first question to me was, are, did it change you? And I thought, Ooh, that's really interesting. Like that was your first question to ask me when somebody tells you I came back from cancer treatment. And I said, actually it did. I said, that's interesting that you asked. Why'd you ask? And he said, well, my wife got cancer. And he goes, and she's different now. He goes, not bad. He goes, just different. And he goes, and she's never been the same. He goes, and not in a bad way, but just different. And I said, yeah, I don't think you can go through something like this and come out the same way you were before. I said, I just don't think it's possible. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, I don't know that how God works and who's meant to and who's not meant to, but I definitely feel like this journey was supposed to be a part of my life for mm-hmm. whatever reason down the line. I feel like you found your reason pretty quickly. You know, you found your, your why. Yeah. I mean, we say it at faith through fire all the time that from obstacles comes opportunities and you just have to kind of keep your eyes open to them. And I do think that there's no personal people say it all the time, but it's so true. There's no personal growth in times of calm. It's like all your growth happens when shit hits the fan and you're just thinking, oh my gosh, what is the point of all this? You know, that is when you really grow as a person and change and evolve. And, and that is a gift. So yeah, I agree with you. Now, I, you brought up an interesting thing and, and I don't know that you really even like stopped to like, so I, I just, in part of your conversation earlier, you talked about like the pink and the races and like, I'm just really curious to know if you, both you, both Beth and Crystal, if you guys identify with the pink and the, you know, walks and the runs and, and all of that, or like is, cause I don't know. It just, it seems like it's something that like people who don't have cancer can like do to support people who do, but I'm curious if people who've been through it really resonate with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I personally don't like, don't like all the cancer stuff. Like people give me socks, fuck cancer or the hat that says fuck cancer or like the wine glass, this cancer fucked with the wrong bitch. Like, I don't like that stuff. Sorry to anybody who's gotten me. Yeah, that no, stuff. I'm the same way. And, that doesn't <laughs> do anything for me. And, and like the, like the pink ribbons. I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I don't know if it reminds me if maybe that's the, just a trigger for a bad time in my life. But my husband got this little tiny pink ribbon. It's like a sticker and he wears it. He wears a baseball hat all the time. And he put one on the back of all his baseball hats, which I appreciate. And I love because to him, you know, supporting me. But other than that, I, I hate all that stuff. I, I mean, I don't like if a friend did a run in my honor, I would be so grateful, but I just, it's just, Maybe it's a world we've always seen through different lenses. And now that we are the people that people are supporting, it just, maybe it's a trigger. I I don't know why I don't like it. Do you know why you don't? Because I think it, I think the reason I don't like it is because, I don't know. I'm with you, Crystal. I don't know why (laughs) I don't love it. Is it a glorification thing? It's a little bit, it's like, it's almost like it's become, it's become so talked about because that's the first thing I thought about when I talked about starting a breast cancer nonprofit. I remember telling my husband, do we need another breast cancer nonprofit? I mean, I mean, goodness, you know, how many freaking times do we have to hear about breast cancer in a year? You know, and now it's, it's like one in seven women. So it's like, okay, you know, I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, it is prevalent, but I, I mean, you'll notice on my website, there's no pink because I don't like that. You know, I don't want to, you know, even though I talk about not wanting to be limited by it and I want to thrive despite it, that's another word that I kind of question is thrive. I just, but you know, it's, it's like, I, I don't know. There's something about it. I I do want support. You know, this is interesting. So we started a network for patients transitioning into survivorship because we did some, we, we started realizing that women were struggling more after treatment ended than they were during the actual act of treatment. And I think that's pretty typical. Psychologists will tell you like when you're going through treatment, it's fight or flight, right? So you're just in, you're in, you know, that mode of, all right, I got to get through this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm just going to get it done. And cause I have to. And then when treatment ends, we call it the fallout a lot of times you start grappling with all the emotions and everything you went through and you kind of have this emotional fault that you were not anticipating at all. And so a lot of women were struggling the most when active treatment was over and we started seeing that. So we did a little bit of market research and found that only 19% of women felt equipped to transition into survivorship. And so I think for me, maybe part of the, so we started this network, this online private platform that they could join and you know, social media can oftentimes make you feel icky, you know, and I don't know about you, Crystal, but if you ever kind of lurk on those um, breast cancer Facebook groups and stuff like that, it can be kind of triggering or depressing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if you want to move on with your life and you want to have good coping skills and you want to be forward facing and live the healthiest life you can, sometimes those places don't feel very good. And so we started this network to be a positive place where you get resources to really help you move beyond your diagnosis and live your most healthy life. And that's why we started it. And I just think that, you know, I was okay with that because it felt like it was empowering and it was allowing us to really, you know, address the issues in survivorship. Maybe I don't like those events and stuff because it glosses over it. Like once you're done with treatment, you're done. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, maybe. I, I don't think I've identified yet why I feel that way. About yeah, that. I don't I don't know exactly either, but one day I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to let you know why. Yeah, that's the part of the psychological journey I haven't figured it out yet. It is. Because it it's not over. I mean, that's the thing. It's not over for the women that get done with treatment. Everybody thinks it's over for you, but you know, fear of recurrence stays with you forever. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a lot of women have to learn to grapple with for the rest of their lives. And there's other issues in survivorship that you come across that nobody prepared you for. And so I just... I think that, you know, the the intention is good, but I don't know. Yeah. I look forward to um, participating in that because not that I'm done, but I just had another surgery, having another complication, like story of my life. So I haven't started the tamoxifen yet. So I'm not done, but I am done. And, you know, you know, the whole spiel, but it'd be nice to start talking to people who are going into survivorship, you know, and then are handling it. And I've heard that from someone else. Um, who was this? Someone I met at my spa and she's like a St. Louis survivor. And she talked about choosing survivorship. And she talked about that being one of the hardest parts for her so far, because mm-hmm. you stop doing all the doctor appointments and all the things you need to do. You stop fighting, mm-hmm. I guess. So yeah. Then- a lot of, a lot of women feel scared because now if they're not, you know, doing chemo and they're not doing radiation, like what are they doing to fight this? You know, and we're on, you know, hormone blockers and that's something, you know, but then when you go off of those, that's another point in time where people start fearing recurrence. And, you know, it's, it's just not done when you stop with that active treatment, when your hair grows back, you know, and, and you look quote unquote normal, people don't really recognize that you have multiple surgeries and, you know, you're dealing with complications and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's not a one and done for a lot of people. For the women that it is, I'm really happy for them because that happens. So many complications and I, my eyes have been open to it. I mean, working in the operating room, I've, I see complications all the time, but the frequency of complications is way more than we, than I must have assumed before. Cause it's just, it's crazy. I think it is more common than not. Yeah. Doctors exactly. have gotten really good at not leading with the bad though. They're, they're like, I'm not going to bring this up because if you don't have this problem, I don't want to scare you. Yeah. But yeah. I think when it does happen, then it's like, well, yeah, we, we kind of thought this might happen or this happens to a lot of people who have had radiation or whatever. Mm-hmm. So well, when I met with my plastic surgeon the very first time, you know, I talked to him for an hour and a half. And after I left, I was like, thank you. You know, meaning just thank you for your time. Thank you for explaining all this to me. But he's like, don't thank me till it's over. You know, we've got 18 months of this. It's going to be a love affair you never wanted. So don't thank me till the end. Oh, 
<laughs> well, I kind of like it that he was real with you. Did you appreciate well, I, that? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah, I like that too. I, I like my doctors to be like, I don't know, just real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But I also don't need to be treated with kid gloves. You know, I think they oftentimes, you know, talk to me like they would a good friend instead of like a patient. So yeah. I like that. All right, Beth. Well, we're wrapping up on an hour, so we're going to let you go. But you, is there anything we didn't touch on that you want to get out there that you want to, a resource you want to share, or you just want to kind of direct people to your website to investigate for themselves? Yeah. I mean, I just want to kind of emphasize that we are there for patients from the day of diagnosis all the way through survivorship. So if you're newly diagnosed or you know somebody that is, you can direct them to faiththroughfire.org and we're happy to support you in any way that makes sense for you and your family, either through a mentor or a Build-A-Bear for your kiddos or the podcast or, you know, or the survivorship support network. It's all on faiththroughfire.org. So we're just here for you and that's that's really what I want women to know is that we did it. They can do it too. Yeah. And, and if, it is .org, not .com, because I sent you the wrong Zoom link earlier today. And that's a mistake. Oh, that's all right. So just to remind people, .org. Either Ellen or Lacey got your back because they sent me the right ones. So. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's faiththroughfire.org. And I have had people try to find us with .com and they don't find us, so... Yeah. And if our listeners who don't have breast cancer would like to get involved in your foundation or your nonprofit, how can how can our listeners support you in your mission here? I mean, there's so many different ways. First and foremost, refer the people that you know to the organization so that they can get the emotional support that they want that they need. Of course, we are always happy to take donations, which they can do on the website. Um, we have exclusive podcast content, which is that they can subscribe to on the Survivorship Support Network or on Patreon. So that's a way to support the nonprofit. All those membership fees go back to helping the newly diagnosed, but it's it's ad-free and censor-free content. So we just get a little bit more in the weeds on what we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so that's for those that love the podcast, that's just a way for them to kind of get more episodes and without all the ads and stuff. So love it. And awesome. what about social media? Are you guys on social? We are. I have a love-hate relationship with social media. Sarah, my my partner, my podcast partner is always making fun of me for that. But we are at Faith Through Fire, Shared Tea on Instagram and, and Facebook. So yeah, you can find us there. And I, I love interacting with people on social media. I'm just not good at social media. Yeah, I hear you. I always joke that I'm like a 90-year-old trapped in a 40-year-old <laughs> body. <laughs> I always got my notepad and my pen and Sarah's like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, you make a good pair then. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We compliment each other, probably like you guys do. All right. Well, thank you, Beth, for chatting with us. I love your resources. I would say I could help with our local surgeons, but you probably have talked to all of them. No, 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 no. We need people. On the, yeah. We need we need people on the inside reminding them because it's just. I think they love our programs, but they forget. They get yeah. busy and they forget. So yeah, no, we well, will we take all with you later, maybe off, you know, off camera, and we can see how I can how I can jump in because I just love it. Yeah, you could be my inside person. Yes, I got you. No espionage. <laughs> well, then, Beth, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I really, really appreciate that you're willing to do this hard work on the back end to help other people who are facing it on the front end. So thank you. Oh, no, thank you, guys. It's great talking to you. And if you want to follow our podcast, we are on Instagram at Hey Smart Mamas. You can find us on Facebook at Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. We each uh, are on social individually. I am STL underscore injector on Instagram. Lacey is at Ms. Lacey Lee. And Ellen is at Ellen Lauletta. And follow us. And oh, head over to iTunes and leave us a rate, review, and subscribe. That would be great. And thank you all. We'll see you next week. Bye. Thank you. Bye.